Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast of the Hispanic Theological Initiative. I am Tony Lin, and today I am here with the, the Dr. Nelly Galan. Dr. Nelly Galan is an author, an entrepreneur, and she is a leader in helping women, uh, empowering women to be entrepreneurs. And uh, she she was the first president of uh, of entertainment for for Telemundo, a channel that uh, that all of us are very familiar with. So thank you for for joining us on Open Plaza, Nelly. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be here, and I'm so happy to be speaking to your beautiful audience and I can't wait to get to know them and to get to know you. Yeah, definitely. So t- tell us a little bit about you. How how did you end up uh, well the, the first big job, right, was president of entertainment for for Telemundo. Yeah, I think that you know, I'm an immigrant, I'm Cuban. I came to this country uh in the late 60s after we had gone through a Cuban revolution. And my parents lost everything. And uh, like so many immigrants, uh, I had to be the translator at five years of age. And I had to be everything for my parents. And I think that for me, um, you know, I don't, and I often wonder if that hadn't happened to me, what my life would be. But I think we are a product of our experiences, our pain. And sometimes our pain, as I say in my book, Self Made, takes us to a place that we needed to go, right? And for me, I think that was, uh, since I was very young, I, I very much wanted to take care of my family. You know that immigrants, we work as a team together. I wanted to make money for them because they had lost everything and had to start all over again. And so I I was very blessed because from the time I was in the seventh grade, I started selling Avon in my school to help my parents pay for school. And then I had a magical thing happen to me in my sophomore year in all-girl Catholic school, which is that I got accused of plagiarism by my favorite nun, who was my English teacher, who thought that I had plagiarized Ernest Hemingway, which I guess in hindsight was a compliment, but it was really not true. I would never have plagiarized anything. And I went home and my parents uh, took the side of the nun. They're like, you have to, tienes que pedir perdón, you have to ask for forgiveness. And I was like, but I didn't do anything. And I was so angry really at my parents because I felt that they were so unempowered that they took the side of whoever was the powerful person, which was at that case, a nun. And uh, I wrote an article to Seventeen Magazine, which is the magazine I read as a teenager about why you should never send your kids to all-girl Catholic school. And three days later, I went back to school. I was suspended for plagiarizing. And sister um, said to me, I'm sorry, your art, your story was so good. I thought it was Ernest Hemingway. In fact, you wrote it and you got an A. And everything was okay for a few months. But like three months later, uh, I got a check in the mail for $100 and Seventeen Magazine published the article. And... Uh, I got called to the principal's office. It was an escándalo. 
And I got expelled from the school. And I had to go tell my parents that, and my mother goes, tu ahora pídele perdón on your hands and knees. <laughs> and um, instead, I went to the library because back then we didn't have internet. I called the board of ed of the state of New Jersey. An African-American man answered the phone. And he, I said to him, can they do this? Isn't this a freedom of speech issue? Didn't my parents leave Cuba for freedom of speech? And the guy says to me, well, it's a private school, so they can do whatever they want, but you don't have to take it. I'm going to set you up with an interview with the local newspaper. Tell them your story. You know, rebellious. And I went and I did the article for the paper. And the next day came up, comes out, Cuban girl expelled for First Amendment. And... <laughs> The, the head nun called us to the school and she said, I didn't say that you were getting expelled. I just said, I didn't like what you did. They graduated me a year and a half early. <laughs> 17 magazine offered me the youngest guest editorship in the history of the magazine. They said to me, we are so proud of you for standing up for your rights. And I had a complete shift in my the way I thought, which before that was unempowered, immigrant, parents scared, everything is wrong. I, you know, I cry if a teacher yelled at me to, to realizing that at that moment in this country, they admired people who stood up for their rights. Mm -hmm. And I realized that my rebelliousness, my desire to of right and wrong my righteousness was going to be honored in this country. Something that I think right now it's a good question because right now it's being questioned our, our rights to freedom of speech. And I went to work at 17 at 15 years of age. And I started writing articles about our rights and the rights of immigrants in this country and the rights of women. And I was recruited into television at 17, uh, and in fact, I just went to see my first boss in television, who is now 88 years old in Texas. This woman producer was doing a teenage version of the TV show, 60 Minutes. Mm -hmm. And she loved the stuff I was writing about. And she hired me as a teen reporter. And I had to move to Texas. This is how I know Sandra and everybody. I moved to Texas and I became the youngest teen reporter uh, for a TV show that was a documentary style show. And I went into television very, very young. And a few years later, and this will tell you how I got, how I got to Telemundo, a few years later, I was recruited by CBS Network in the correspondent training program. And at that point, I thought, I'm going to grow up to be Diane Sawyer or Barbara mm -hmm. Walters or something like that. And I was sent all over the country. When you're a young reporter, you do like 10 reports a day. It's like grueling. Mm -hmm. And they sent me to Los Angeles to interview this very, you know, now very famous producer named Norman Lear, who's just turned 100. Yeah. And uh, I was working on a, on a, on a special for, on John F. Kennedy, and he knew John F. Kennedy. And he said to me, what are, what nationality are you? And I said, I'm, I'm Latina, I'm Cuban. And he goes, my partner and, and I just bought the first Spanish TV station in New York, in America. 
And it was like a little local station. And he goes, you should come and work for us. And I said, why would I want to come and work on a Spanish TV station? Ugh. I am working for CBS. I'm going to be a CBS network correspondent. And he said, are you stupid? Do you, you speak Spanish and English? Do you not know the Latino market is going to be a multi-billion dollar market? My partner and I are multi-millionaires. Do you have money? And I go, no, I'm broke. And he goes, don't you want to learn instead how to build a business from the bottom up instead of being a, you know, a factory worker at CBS working for the man? And, and I quit my job and I went to work for these two guys that later became billionaires. I was employee wow. one of what is now Telemundo. And, I, you know, I went through a lot to go from being employee one, running a little rinky dinky station to being the first Latina woman president of a network in the United States. Mm -hmm. But that's how the whole trajectory started. Wow. So it was Norman Lear who hired you to be yes. at, a tele, at Telemundo. Yeah, it wasn't called Telemundo then. It was just Channel 47, Little Rinky Dinky Station. There were many versions of mm -hmm. what happened and many people came and went. And But eventually wow. I survived and became the first Latina woman president of a network, which so, was my so, dream. It tell, ended tell up being more. This is the, the way you went from uh, a 17-year-old girl to, to, you know, the running Telemundo, right? I, I'm I'm struck by by the power of words, right? The the pen was indeed mightier than the sword in your life. You That's you right. put words to pen, right? Or to paper. Yes. You got published. And it was that like the the, the rage and injustice you felt. <laughs> you channel it on paper. Yeah. And that's what started your trajectory. Yes. To where and, you I, are. And, I, and 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 the trajectory has kind of culminated for me in this book that I wrote called Self-Made. And I want people to really know what that means because I don't think anyone is self-made. I mean, I think, you know, as, as a Christian, uh, you know, we believe that, you know, God is with us always, right? So mm -hmm. I want to clarify that. To me, what self-made means is, is, and this book was geared toward women and empowering women, both economically and entrepreneurially, because I realized that if, you know, God is going to help you, but you have to help yourself. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by self-made is that to make it to the end of your life, what I've learned is you have to make yourself over, over and over again. Right. You are on a trajectory and that trajectory is an obstacle course. Mm -hmm. And along the way, if you're not flexible, if you don't pivot, if you don't evolve, if you don't grow all the time and are willing to change and are willing to um you know, understand that the road is not a clear road and go with that, you're not going to make it to the end of your life. You're going to be a very uh, fear-based person that is suffering a lot. And so I think all of those writings, I started out like writing about my rights and then mm -hmm. I've written about women's rights. You know, so I'm not a fiction writer like Sandra, my dear friend Sandra Cisneros, who encouraged me to write who's the one that said to me, you have to keep writing and now you have to write books. But my books are about righteousness and about empowerment. And, and I try, you know, I, I tend to write about people of color and um, 
because I feel that we're so unempowered in this country and even around the world. Mm -hmm. And I want to encourage us to understand how important we are and how our numbers are so important. And yet our power doesn't match our numbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think the your, your trajectory now, the work that you're doing now, right, reflects the the passion for justice that you have for because justice. you you could have stayed as an executive in network television and cable now, right? And you can, I'm sure you could go back and do that. Well, and I became a producer after that. You know, I started my own business and I've produced shows and I also started a business launching channels. I've done all of that. Mm -hmm. I think, I think also, Tony, it's important to say, and I, you know, cause I know that sometimes like people that come from our backgrounds and our religion tend to not want to talk about money, like thinking money is the root of all evil and that people with money are not good people. And I, I want to dispel that because I think that, you know, for me, I have made money. I made money, you know, working for a company that was sold. I've made money making TV shows. I've made money. And that money has allowed me to have a nonprofit that helps Latinas. It's allowed me to have the freedom to write books. As you know, a lot of people that write books or create content or make films that are powerful, don't make money doing that. And mm -hmm. so sometimes we have to handle the money part of our life, get out of survival mode uh, right. in order to do our greatest work. I think, you know, somehow we feel again, that to be an artist and you have to be a starving artist and that somehow that is holier than someone who goes, makes money and does some, even people that are plumbers or electricians or you know, work in, in 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 garbage or whatever. Those are very beautiful careers that lead people to be able to retire early and sometimes write the book of their life or mm -hmm. make the little film of their life. And that's just as holy to me. Absolutely. So so as you know, my 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 book is on prosperity gospel. I, I study prosperity gospel Christians. And there's a saying in that world, in those of us who study that, that uh, liberation theology, right, which, you know, Gustavo Gutierrez came up from Latin America, the preferential, you know, God's pre preferential option for the poor, it almost romanticizes, I think, romanticizes and glorifies poverty. And so there's a saying that says, uh, liberation theology chose the poor, but the poor chose Pentecostalism. They chose prosperity gospel. Uh, that, that gives me right? and, and so I run into this, you know, because of my... Uh, my circles, right? I run into people who are very critical of capitalism, critical of, of money and wealth. And, and sure, sure, there's a lot to criticize. I'm, I'm oh, there with is. them. I mean, not it's every, not perfect, but, right? but I think there's there's not, you know, there there. I've worked for a lot of billionaires, and you know, uh, money is a, is a huge temptation, and it is a burden. It's a burden. I think people don't realize that having a lot of money creates a very burdenous life. But I've met beautiful people that are wealthy and i've met bad people that are wealthy i've also mm -hmm. met beautiful people that are poor and bad people that are poor i think that those are choices um that people make and yes different different um issues that we have in life whether it's survival issues i grew up in survival issues mm -hmm. but other people have other issues and those issues test all of us in different ways they do yeah. Absolutely. And and I think that that's the, the disconnect, I think, a lot. Even we, we see this even, even in public by outside of Christianity, where the 
the elite have a view of those who are, you know, struggling financially, struggling, and have a view of how they should get there versus how those who don't have much want to get there. Right? They they want to make money. They want to 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 for for lack of a better word, a, a good theology of wealth. Right? That's we don't right. have a good theology of wealth. We we just well, have the the critique of wealthy people. I I think that. I think that, you know, one of the things that, you know, I always say that my most powerful tool is that I am an immigrant, because I think when you're an immigrant, the beautiful thing that you have that many other people in, let's say, a first world country don't have, is you have incredible quantum empathy. Because when you have parents that did everything right, went to college, struggled to go to college, you know, in a third world country, and then everything gets taken away from them not because of them, because something outside of their, you know, uh, uh, worldview or whatever happened, right? You realize that bad things do happen to good people. You do. And you walk in the world very empathetic. Like, you know, I say this to my son because I'm always trying to explain to him. Like when you go to a restaurant and you order food with me, you don't think about what can I order and what can I pay for and what can, because your mom has money. But when I grew up, when I was growing up, for my parents to go out to dinner was a big deal. And we were always very careful not to order the most expensive thing on the meal, on the thing. So when we go out with other people, we're very empathetic of their state in life and not to put them in a humiliating situation. Or you're always thinking about how other people feel in their shoes. And that comes from having had parents suffer. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a beautiful gift that many people, not even just wealthy people, many young kids in America, because they've had everything, don't even think that way. Don't ever put themselves in the shoe of someone else. I've also witnessed the shoes of very wealthy people who started out just like a revolutionary starts out with an ideology you know, I always explain communism or, you know, certain socialism that's extremist because it could be a right wing dictator or a left wing dictator that they start out as ideologues and then something happens and they start taking away rights. And once you start mm -hmm. taking away rights, it's like you're Luke Skywalker and you become Darth Vader. Mm -hmm. But the same thing happens to some rich people. Like they start out really loving something, loving a business. And they almost like they so focus that they become billionaires faster than they thought. And then when they become billionaires, they either can make really good decisions or they become, can become greedy. Or I've seen billionaires that become power crazy, right? Just like an, mm -hmm. just like an ideologue. These things happen to people when their lives change dramatically and they and, and and you know this is why i studied psychology because it is more psychology to me is so different from our spirituality and our religion because it is very tactical it's what do you do with new information when really we're not wired to handle such drastic changes as human beings right and some people when you add up sort of their history and their backgrounds and their family system, make bad choices when they are asked, when they, when they, when they go from being not powerful to powerful, 
-hmm. not wealthy to wealthy. These huge changes in a lifetime are hard to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yes, in sociology. Sometimes they turn out well and sometimes they turn out very poorly. Mm -hmm. In in sociology, Emil Durkheim calls that the, the sense of anomie, right? When you're disconnected from the world because of certain changes. And the, the loneliness often leads to, to unfortunately, what we're seeing a lot, right? The, the rate of suicide, I think last year was greater than yes. maybe ever since we started recording it. Yeah. And, and I think a really important part you said, you mentioned is that we, we have to get to know people, right? That you know, I, I was in the fundraising world when I was at the University of Virginia. So, so I, I got to meet a lot of million, millionaires and billionaires. And once you get to meet them, they're not those people anymore, right? It's not the, the one yeah. percentage. It, it's hard to demonize people you know, right? Because they, they're struggling just like the rest of us. Oh, they're they struggling. Are, the and anxiety that's they be, suffer. The... We have to be empathetic to everybody. Like, you know, just as, as a psychologist, uh, I also realize that everyone's pain is valid. Like you could have somebody who's a billionaire, so they have no survival needs, but they could have a kid that's a heroin addict. They could have, you know, the most horrible childhood. You know, I always tell people, you don't know what, like you meet someone and you don't know what happened before you met them or what's going to happen after you meet them. And, you know, you, you could say, I wish I had their life, but then I would say to you, well, with their life comes their cross to bear and you don't know what that is and so you may not know that that person is going to be in a car accident and they're going to be quadriplegic but they're a billionaire or you may not know that they had to be raped when they were six years old and they're a billionaire and you know those are the things that's why we I think that the 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 hard part is that we're human and in humanity Mm -hmm. we feel a lot of horrible things like jealousy like you know, it's all, all is in the Bible, right? Uh, desiring things that are not ours, doing because we can't stay in our lane. And our lane mm-hmm. is, this is your unique journey through this life. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you are here to grow and learn. It is a teaching. It's not like, I, I love the way everybody's talking about now, the pursuit of happiness. To me, it's so ridiculous because happiness is moments. And it could be a moment in nature. It could be a moment with a little kid. It could be a moment, you know, it's not a a constant thing. But suffering isn't a constant thing either and doesn't need to be either. It is just the human experience is an obstacle course that has exciting moments, it's happy moments, and it has a lot of struggles and a lot of challenges. And until I think we have to be more realistic about that. Yeah, I always remind people, happiness is one of those things that the more you pursue it, the less you get it. That's right. Because <laughs> you miss so, out on living. <laughs> you know, people ask me a lot, you've made it. Oh my God. Okay. I, you know, once I got on the on the trajectory of being in television, I really did have this dream to be the first Latina woman president of a network, right? And then I got it and it was like an ego, like euphoric moment for a day. And then it was 
like the opposite of that because I was, you know, a big corporation hired me. I was working in a corporation. I was bombarded every minute of every day with people wanting things from me, having a huge staff, having many, many problems every day. And then I realized anything that comes from your ego doesn't make you happy. Your ego is like a false God inside your body that's begging mm -hmm. for things that when it gets it, it's a false thing. And in fact, the happiest moments of your life or periods of your life are not an ego at all. Mm -hmm. But you have to grow and learn these things, you know, and as I said to my son, you know, I left being a TV reporter to go run a little network, which was not an ego decision. It was, it was more of a logical decision. And that was a great decision. And that was a happy period. You, because you're young and you're living in social media life would choose being on TV more than going and that would probably not make you as happy. And the things I've chosen with my ego have failed me very poorly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I, I also want to highlight that, uh, that, you know, quote unquote, you made it before you even went to college. Right? That's right. And then I went back to college. And let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. Because... Everybody asked me at the height of my career, I left everything and went back to school. And I did it for many reasons. One, because my son was in the third grade and he was struggling. And he goes, and he said to me one day, I am never going to go to college. You didn't finish college and you've done very well. And that really was like a stab in my heart, right? Because mm -hmm. I didn't believe that that was true. And secondly, because I had already made money and I thought to myself, I know that I have gaps in my education. I am faking it very well and I'm really good at other things that covers for those gaps. So only I know. So I can walk through the world the rest of my life feeling like a fraud or I can go fix it. And I went back to school. And actually, what I really realized once I had gone to school is that there was something else that was a hole in my soul that school filled. And that was that I made it so quickly. Like we're talking a lot today about people making it, you know, being famous young and getting everything quick. And, mm -hmm. and that is the worst thing that could happen to you because when everything comes to you quickly, you skip stages of life like a high school graduation, like a wedding, like a college graduation, things that allow you, we, we started off talking about when you have big changes in life and you, your human nature can't absorb it. You need markers to tell you this part of your life has ended and this part is beginning, phases of life. By the time I went back to school, I realized that I was very, very old in career years and very immature in personal years. And mm -hmm. as a result, I had made a lot of mistakes in my personal life. More than, you know, and, and, and those are the, you know, the difficulties and the regrets of my life that I could have found, I'm such a family person, I could have found a mate if I had, if I had had more maturity 
that was right for me. But instead, I, I, you know, I didn't do that because I was immature. And I think that in the end, I went to school not only to fill the gaps in my education, but to become congruent between my personal side and my business side. Mm -hmm. Slow down my career so that my emotional self could and my spiritual self could catch up. And I think this is so, so important, especially for young people to hear this, because there's such a utilitarian view of education that if I get this degree, I'm going to make this much money, right? But but there's a formation part. There's a reason why universities were, is where the humanities are taught, right? It's supposed to make us more and better humans, right? In, in those years of study and, and reading and education. And and that's exactly what you did, right? You, you had the career, you had the money, but you went to complete yourself by focusing on learning. Mm -hmm. And I really think that was, besides having my son, the greatest decision of my life, that I, I had the wisdom to know something was wrong mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that I had the money and the time to do it. And again, I did not choose my ego because I remember my agent called me who was managing, you know, managing my TV shows and all that. And he said, are you insane? Are you having a nervous break? like you're leaving making the most money like I, I wanted to do that like be a big tv producer and I, and I was a big tv producer but I kind of like let it go and I just want people to hear that I had faith that what was calling me was what was what I was supposed to do and you know the greatest part of my life has been since I went to school because I decided to focus on minority women. I decided that I wanted to talk about, I was very confused in school studying psychology, how much they were pathologizing minority women. When I was sitting on boards of corporations that were telling me minority women are the number one customer in the world, that they have the most power and they don't know it. And I put those two dots together and I decided to focus on empowering women. Mm -hmm. And it's been the most joyous part. Like I talk about happiness. I've had much more happiness doing this than everything I did before. Mm -hmm. and, and it makes sense because it's almost like before you focus on creating things for people to consume. And now you're, you're empowering people to create things. Correct. Right? So you, Correct. you went from... From helping women women be consumers to helping women be creators, right? And I think, and I think also it goes back to what I started saying. I think that you cannot be afraid to pivot, to change, to hear your inner voice. You know, I always say, like, I have I have deep conversations with God myself. You know, I don't need to go somewhere to do it. I don't need. You know, I do it myself and I go, what is this? I ask, I ask God questions and God answers me. Like, what am I feeling right now? What is bothering me? What is making me, um, why am I feeling jealous? What is it that I'm jealous of? Instead of being jealous, why don't I go ask that person? You know, I was starting to feel jealous of people that had gotten dogs, right? And, and you have to listen to yourself 
And sometimes you can't do what you want to do right in that moment. Sometimes you have to go make money. And this is why I, lo I love psychology. And I, I really want to talk about it because I know in Christianity, a lot of people poo-poo psychology. And I think it's, you know, it's a tool. I think that there's something about your spiritual life. And I have a very deep spiritual life. And there's something about a study that allows you to take action, right? And for me, psychology is what's your presenting problem? Just like a doctor would say, oh, I'm depressed. I'm this. Okay, let's go deeper. Why are you depressed? Let's take some action. Maybe you don't, maybe you need to realize you're in a bad job and you're being abused in that job. Okay, we need to move out of that job. We need to, maybe you're, okay. So it's helping. It's like a coach that can help you mm -hmm. take action because God and spirituality without you taking action is going to go nowhere. So it's a combination of having an awareness and having a feeling and having conversations with yourself and finding your, your relationship with your God, whoever that is for you. Mm -hmm. And then having to be in this human body in a real life that has to take action and move things little by little, you know, yeah. um, I was just taught when I, I was just with Sandra and all the writers in San Antonio at a, at a writing retreat. And I told a very beautiful story. I went on the road with Rigoberta Menchu, our Nobel laureate from Guatemala. And she, she told me something that, that I shared with the group. And she said, indigenous people always wear a belt to remind us that half of us is of the sky. And we have to wake up every day <clears throat> and dream in the sky, dream big. And, and be in the in the clouds and be thinking of our soul and our spirituality and our our intentions and our beautiful things. But we wear a belt to remind us that the other half is of the earth. And that in the earth, you have to plant little seeds every day and water them and take little steps every day to make those dreams come into action. Because dreams with no actions is nothing at all. Mm. And I find that very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about your, your education, your psychology degree, because you didn't just go back and get a bachelor's. You you went all the way. You are Dr. Nelly Galan. Yeah. You got a yeah. doctorate in clinical psychology. And more interestingly, you focus on the psychology of money, right? Yes. Tell, tell us more. Tell us more about that. Well, I... I you know, when you're a psychologist, I'm a clinical psychologist. So mm -hmm. I had to actually see patients mm -hmm. and I don't, you know, people get shocked when they hear that I spent a year, uh, after all the success I had in TV, I spent a year in a middle school and high school with, and I studied uh, this thing called family system psychology, which mm -hmm. is you see the entire family in the room. And I focused on gang families. And it was very fascinating work. Wow. Uh, first of all, I want people to hear that going back to getting out of your ego and getting into like what really makes you happy, you would say that from being a very big TV producer and making millions of dollars making TV shows, I went and worked in a middle school as the therapist. Nobody knew who I was. I changed my name so they couldn't Google me. And I was a therapist for gang families. Sometimes in life, you have to take what the world perceives 
as going backwards to then go a hundred steps forward. Mm. And you have to humble yourself to do that. And that was a very humbling and beautiful, happy experience. So many of the problems of gangs and, and, and gangs are like a family system themselves was economic unempowerment. You know, searching for that mm. uh, belonging or searching for that empowerment in a gang mentality, in lower acquaintances, in people around you that are less than you and you become, you know, you then you go more or less. <laughs> um, and it started making me think about is there a way to empower these people economically so they don't have to feel like they want to be with lower acquaintances? Because all of us should aspire to be with people better than us, smarter than us, uh, more beautiful than us. Instead of feeling jealous or not part of that, we should be around that and, and take that in and grow and level up. But coming from places where we feel like somehow we're not, we don't have a seat at the table. The answer often to that is to join a lower acquaintance family of some sort. And that fascinated me. And I had to write a dissertation. Mm -hmm. And again, the juxtaposition of being on these boards that were saying minority women and particularly Latinas were the number one emerging market in the world, numerically, and, and in terms of poder adquisitivo, in terms of uh, uh, financial power. Mm -hmm. And then hearing in psychology school that we were the problem in this country. It was just too much for me to take. And so I had to really dig deep into that. And I wrote mm -hmm. my dissertation on that, which eventually became my book. That, and that was self-made. That's, that's, self that's what ended up being self-made. So and and you do you so out of this you your passion is to help train specifically women right to self empowerment to be entrepreneurs, uh, give us a sense of of what uh, what does that entail right there there are a lot of clergy pastors here who are listening to this show, and they yeah. might want to to have these type of workshops right so well, so what happens? Tell you that it's funny you say that because one of the things I wanted to tell you and I want to put it out there is. When I wrote my book, I got a call from Bishop T.D. Jakes. <laughs> I've been to his to church. Me, I've been to the Potter's house. <laughs> I've been, well, I've been to his church many times. <laughs> and he invited me to go speak at his church. And I was like, really? And he goes, yes, because I feel that I tell my congregation uh, that they have to focus on empowering themselves economically and that God can't do everything for them. And, and I've been to his church now many times. And because of him, I've got invited to a lot of African-American churches, which is unbelievable to me. And I love, and, and, and one of the reasons I was so excited when Macarena told me to speak to you is because I really believe that this, is, this money thing is not just, I, of course, I'm coming to it from the psychology of money, but in fact, it is a spiritual practice. And I believe it can be a spiritual practice. And 
you know, I love very opposite things. Like I do love finance and I've gotten, I, I'm not a financial, I wasn't a financial person to begin with, but I have dug deep into it because I do believe that I, I try to think about what is the one place in my life where I am the cleanest, you know, none of us are perfect. We're very human and we're all flawed, but I really walk the walk of what I talk about. You know, there's other things I can't teach because I, maybe I'm not as congruent, but in this part of my life, I really, you know, I'm not a grandiose person. I don't live lavishly. It's, I don't want money for those reasons. I want to live okay, but I want, you know, I, I, I really am more about having money for freedom to do the things I want to do. And what I want is to democratize finance and make finance, you know, I, I really feel that the missing link for us is lack of knowledge. It's something that is like for those gringos or those people and not for us. And that we have to stay in this place where we belong. And I just don't, I, I don't believe in that. I don't agree with it. And I believe money is a spiritual practice, how you deal with it, how you spend, why you make the money, what you do with the money, and then how you spend the money is a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. And I hope I encourage a lot of people to invite me to your church. And uh, I hope that that begins a real dialogue because while we are unempowered economically, you know, People don't realize, and I'm going to tell you something that's pretty shocking. I don't think people realize or are told that billionaires have the ability to do the most incredible philanthropic work more than any government, more than any people, because I don't think you realize that billionaires cannot spend in their lifetime the money they have. And every year they owe so much money to the IRS and taxes that if they give that money away to philanthropy, they actually have the ability to change the world. Many uh, many uh, billionaires don't give any money away and just give it to the IRS or give it to whatever. And some of them that are very quiet and don't go, don't go bragging about it are actually changing the world. And I, in my own little way, because I'm not a billionaire, but... I make enough money that I give money away every at the end of every year. And in my own little way, I mean, I don't know a lot of Latinos that do that. And, and partially because when we have any extra money, our philanthropy is our parents. And that comes first. Mm -hmm. Our families and our parents come first. But once you get past that, then, you, you know, when you are trained by other millionaires and billionaires, you realize, oh, my God. I can give the money to this situation and fix the situation. And so it is a spiritual practice and our ignorance of the tax laws. You know, when I was in my office and, and Donald Trump was running for president and he said one day, I don't pay taxes. And, and everybody in my office goes, he's evil. He doesn't pay taxes. And I go, you can be mad with Donald Trump for other things, but don't be mad at him for that because the laws in this country allow you to not pay taxes and give the money away. You don't know what he gave the money to, but he gave the money to, away because it is legal to do that. So it's ignorance to not understand people that are poor or people that are rich. And what do they do with it? 
And it's public knowledge. You can look up any billionaire. Where did they give it? You know, Jeff Bezos' wife that he got divorced and she got all his money gave most of her money away. Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos, who is not so philanthropic himself, but he gave his father, who's Cuban, Mm -hmm. a foundation. And the father has given all the money away. So he doesn't know what to give away to, but he gave the money to his father who raised him, a stepdad that raised him. So uh, Bill Gates is solving the problem of the world in, in toilets, getting toilets for the world. I mean, we don't know, we're ignorant. And we don't think like, we're not dreaming like that. Like I am dreaming like that. If I mm-hmm. made a, a billion dollars, what would I do with it? I'd focus on Latinos because I care about Latinos. But if we don't have more Latino billionaires, Nobody's going to care about us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the, that's why I say this, this is inner outer work that we need to do. Mm-hmm. When uh, when people were criticizing uh, Trump for not paying taxes, I said, you know, he, he might have done, and now we know he did other criminal things, but he followed the law on the taxes. If you have problems with that, you change the laws in taxes, but you can't criticize somebody for you know that that's our if you think that's messed up then you change the law by the way every single one of us can use those tax laws in our favor as well we just don't Mm -hmm. know we get scared about our taxes you know i'm my next book that i'm writing and i'm writing it with this guy his name is julio gonzalez latino who knew i found him i i'm like and he's he is the (laughs) tax expert in the country. He does all the billionaires taxes. And we are writing a book together about taxes because it's such a fear-based thing for minorities that I wanted to spell it and I want to make it like, oh my God, taxes are going to, if you know how to you, you know, use the tax laws, you could do incredible things with your money instead of giving it to the IRS. You can, you, the government can partner with you so you can actually invest that money in things that make you more money yeah i think the i think that and that's great that's we definitely absolutely need that because there, there are even churches we don't know how to take benefit of the tax benefits to churches right we have to oh teach clergy how to do that but but also i also want to put the a plug that we should still pay our taxes <laughs> we still no, of course right we need no, no, roads no. we need schools we, we also pay taxes. So, but yes. what i'm saying is there are ways mm-hmm. to follow what's going on with the tax laws and the government. The government invests in things that if you invest with them, you are, you know, you're getting a tax write-off and that money's growing. And yeah. I, I want to dispel all these myths we have that are fear-based about not knowing things and learning things so that we too can take those advantages. Yeah, I was talking to some Latinos yes, just a few days ago, Monday, Monday, some Puerto Rican groups, colleagues here, and they were thinking about how, how can we get people excited about not just paying taxes, but what the taxes do, right? Because everybody sees taxes and IRS as a bad thing, right? But we don't ever see the, the good that comes out of that. Most of, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to do this. There's no internet if the government had invested 30 years ago in this, right? A lot of the medicine, right? It's all NIH and, 
you know, whatever, you know, there's no iPhones without government grants to begin with, right? So so there, there's this, you know, what you would say that the private private public partnerships, right, to, to create things. Our world is better because both, sure, they're private foundation who do it, but also the government puts a bill for, you know, our taxes, puts a bill. Well, I don't, I don't think, I don't think we also understand that the government invests in a lot of technology at universities that then the government owns and that we as citizens can go to Washington and get the local rights for some of those trademarks to start a business in your town. Exactly. There's so much we don't know about. And yeah, to be we, fair, we don't teach it in school when since kids are little, you know, so it, it's, it's also a, a systematic problem that we don't teach the masses finance money from the time you're a little kid when that's really, you really need to know that. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor, a lawyer, a plumber, a cleaning lady, you need to know about the financial system in this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so going back to, to what I what I asked <laughs> earlier about the the training and entrepreneurship. So what, what does that training entail? So if a, if a group of uh, abuelitas and señoras have them. I've had many groups, many groups. So what, we, what, what do you take them through? There's in different, there's different stages, right? Mm -hmm. So like there's stage one, stage two, stage three. I want, first of all, let me tell everybody that I have an online platform in English and in Spanish. In English, it's called Becoming Self-Made. And you can actually reach the Spanish one through it. Uh, and then there's the adelantemovement.com. It's it's Adelante Movements in English and Spanish. That one's more geared specifically to Latinos, uh, men and women, uh, but a lot of women stuff. And there's hundreds of hours of content, webinars that teach you how to start a business from scratch, how to have a side hustle at different levels, how to work for other people and start a little business on the side, how to invest your money. Everything is in there for free. And it's on both sides, becoming self-made, and the Adelante movement. But the, the thing that I think you're going to love is that right now I have a podcast in English and in Spanish. And it's called, uh, in English, it's called Money Maker uh, with Nelly Galan. So you could look it up. It's free. You can Money Maker with Nelly Galan. You can get it on Spotify, Apple, just the internet, whatever. And in Spanish, it's called Mi Mundo Rico. And in Mi Mundo Rico, I interview a lot of a lot of Americanos that are very famous financial people. I, I subtitle for them in Spanish and I also transcribe it so you can take it as well as interviewing people in Spanish. I do both, but I want you to hear from the most powerful people in the United States. And a lot of times in Spanish, we don't get that information. So that's why I'm subtitling them and transcribing it. So you can take it home and read it if you prefer to read it. Mm -hmm. Um, I want, I did the Spanish one because so many immigrants are coming into this country, especially from Latin America, from socialist regimes right now, where they've lost everything again, just like my parents did. I want to help them on board into this country and understand the financial system. And I feel like that's my mission. And on the American side, in English, um, I did the podcast with a group of very young people because they, my son even said to me, mom, you're only helping women. You need to help young men and young women too. So I talk a lot also to young people coming out of high school and college. Mm -hmm. So they start on the right foot. So please go to my podcast, Money Maker with Nelly Galan, 
or in Spanish, Mi Mundo Rico. I also do a podcast every week that's just me telling my stories. And the ones in Spanish I love because I tell you all the heartbreaking stories of our families and all the people I've met and a lot of entrepreneurs. I tell stories and I feel like I'm doing my best work in this podcast. Um, oh, and then my, my websites give you very tactical step-by-step what to do. And I also do events all over the country all the time. And all of you clergy invite me, I'll come. All right, everyone, you heard her. <laughs> she, she's available. Well, thank you so much, Nelly. This was so fun. I learned so much. I'm so glad we talked because I think that in our spiritual life, which to us is so important, mm-hmm. you know, I do believe that we have to also include action. Mm-hmm. And this financial piece is a real problem for those of us that are Christian. It really is. Yeah. I think we have a lot of confusion around it. And a lot of, we've been told a lot of things um, that maybe aren't true, that maybe aren't serving us anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to look at it uh, as a whole, a holistic and holy life. That's right. And all parts of us um, have to be worked on, not just one part. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much for your time and thank oh, you for so gracing us with your presence. To you and so wonderful to spend time with you. You're doing incredible work and bless you and and I really honor you for doing this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Blessing to you as well. Thank you. Thank you for ayudar a nuestra gente. Gracias. Yo creo que que Dios nos manda cosas para hacer cosas con lo que nos mandó, right? Y yo sí. creo que nuestra vida como inmigrantes y como personas que hemos tenido que, que, que sabemos muchas cosas que quizás otra gente no sabe. Eh, yo creo que nada es más importante en la vida to learn every day and to grow every day and to teach what you know. Sí. And I think que, que todos tenemos que hacer eso. Un amigo, autor también, Gino Díaz, siempre dice que la, la gente que privilegiada siempre mira para adelante y se enoja de lo que está en adelante, ¿no? Tiene un resentimiento de lo que está en adelante. Para nosotros los inmigrantes, nosotros siempre estamos mirando para atrás porque sabemos de dónde vinimos y de dónde estamos. Y siempre estamos mirando para atrás para ver quién podemos traer, ¿no? Quién podemos ayudar. Para, también para sabemos, que, sabemos entender que cosas pueden pasar. Mira ahora mismo este fuego en, en Hawái. Sí. Cosas, cosas pasan que son más grandes que tú. O sea, hay cosas que uno, hay problemas que uno busca en la vida y hay problemas que llegan. Y sabemos que this too shall pass. Uh-huh. Todo pasa en la vida. Sí. Mira, yo tuve dos años muy difíciles. Mi mamá se enfermó. Tuve que mudarme a Miami. Cuidar dos viejitos latinos, que eso es otro, eso es otro tema que tenemos que hablar. De que los latinos están viviendo en Estados Unidos y sola, está, piensan que están viviendo en su país eh, antes que uno vive en familia y no. hoy en día tienen que ir a vivir en lugares con medical health uh-huh. and they go kicking and screaming o sea que fueron dos años muy difíciles and I just hung in there because yo he vivido estos tipos de años malos before y yo sé que todo en la vida pasa y que hay lecciones en todo y que tienes que todo el tiempo pensar ¿Qué es lo que aprendí? ¿Qué es lo que, ¿Qué es lo que tengo que hacer mejor? ¿Cómo no vuelvo a cometer esos errores? Todo pasa, todo pasa. Y después vienen blessings otra vez. Sí, sí. 
Amén, amén. Qué sermón que te tiraste. Tú sabes que yo fui la que produjo el show Padre Alberto for Telemundo. Did you know that? Ah, sí, no, no sabía. I invented that show and I found Father Albert and we were the first people to do a talk show with a priest. Uh, in, in American history, there was another priest, uh, uh, Robert Fulton in the 50s mm -hmm. that was on TV every week and, and became very famous and almost did little baby sermons every Sunday night. And we we started Father Albert with a tiny little, you know, baby three minute homily that then we, you know, and the show was about people at the crossroads of moral and ethical dilemmas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sí, sí. Wow. Es episcopal, ¿no? No es católico. No, bueno, es Padre Alberto era católico en aquel momento. Se enamoró de una mujer. Dejó el catolicismo. Y ahora es episcopal y tiene tres hijos. Bueno, así... Quite, así, a, quite a shocking uh, life change. No, no, yo, yo soy... <laughs> we're in an episcopal church now. Yo trabajo ¿no? en una iglesia episcopal y la mayoría de los latinos, de los sacerdotes latinos... Evan. <laughs> igualito, igualito. <laughs> you guys are too enamorados. What can I tell you? No, no, yo soy presbiteriano. We could always get married. So, así That's que right. yo... <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. Pero muchos de los sacerdotes episcopales, same story. Eran católicos y se, y se, y se cambiaron. Sí, sí. Del, el corazón te tira. So. I get it. I get it. Yeah. So anyway, so I have a, you know, I have a lot of uh, experience with clergy. I do. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It, like it calls to me. You know, I, I, I often, it's so weird. It's, it's, I just get, I get along with. Y eso que tuve el issue con la monja, but I love monjas. And I love clergy. Sí, sí. And I imagine that I produced a show with a clergy. Mm -hmm. I mean, no, la monja you know, te ayudó. I, la monja te dio tu ayudó, la carrera. Me ayudó, sí, sí. Fue una bendición total. lo que hizo. Una bendición total, total, total. Sí. Bueno, bueno. Dale, bueno, te dejo ir. No te saco más I hope we will stay in touch. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I'm already having ideas of what, how we can keep collaborating. So. Ay, qué lindo, qué lindo. Sí, sí. Me da mucho gusto conocerte. Sí, no, un placer, el placer es mío. Uno de estos días voy, voy a Miami a ver, a ver a mi colega, a Messi, a jugar y nos vamos a la cancha juntos. Hey, tío, I would love it, I would love it. Ok, all right, Nelly, thank you so much. Muchas gracias. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.